You're listening to a podcast from Why Not a Woman? Celebrating women in public and private life in Ireland, 1918 to 2018. The Women's History Association of Ireland's annual conference for 2018. The conference took place in Dublin Castle on the 15th of December and was supported by the Department of Culture, Heritage and the Gaeltacht. Podcasting was by Real Smart Media. This podcast features the fourth panel at the conference, History, Activism and Feminism, The Personal is Political, 1970-2018. The panel featured Anne Speed, Mary Dorsey and Professor Linda Connolly in conversation with broadcaster Vincent Brown. This is the first time in my career that I've chaired something and I've been given what to read in advance um, and all the questions are related uh, have been laid out for me and I'm, I'm, I've had to promise not to deviate from what Sarah-Anne has, uh, has insisted upon. The um, biogs of the participants here are all been written by themselves, so whatever praise is included here is by, them, by themselves. <laughs> okay, you start with Anne Speed then, just for that. Um, she's a member of uh, ICTU Executive Council. During the 70s, she led a campaign to legalise contraception. In the 1980s, Anne defended family planning clinics after anti-choice forces attempted to shut them down. Anne was in charge of equality and campaigning in Siptu before joining work, starting work with Unison in Belfast five years ago. Anne heads up a bargaining and negotiations in a union with a mainly female membership that is heavily involved in health service and education. Linda Connolly is... Um, a professor of sociology at Maynooth University. She's author of a number of books, including From Revolution to Devolution and the Irish Women's Movement, and also from Documenting Irish Feminism in the Second Wave. And, and Mary Ducey is a writer, poet, lifelong feminist, and LGBT activist, founder member of the SLM. What says, what says Sexual SLM? Liberation Movement. Sexual Liberation. And Irish Women United. She has published books... Um, she has published a number of books and won the Rooney Prize uh, for Literature in 1990. OK, um, just listening to the last session and thinking generally about the position of women in Ireland, I think that one of the most salient features of the condition of women in Ireland can be derived from two factors. One is the Savvy Report of 2002, which showed that 200,000 women had been raped in the course of their lifetimes. Many other hundreds of thousands of women had been sexually abused, often violently. That's number one factor, I think, is something very salient about women in Ireland. And the second salient thing is that that survey got almost no, re- no attention, either by the political class or the media class, and that nothing proportionate has been done to address that problem. What do you think, um, Gosh, well, I suppose that's part of um, a broader question around sexual violence in society. We've, we've seen only this year, haven't we, uh, the impact of very high-profile rape cases. Only two days ago, I read in the newspaper of a case where apparently the victim involved is afraid uh, to come forth because they said the individual is a very powerful person. So I suppose it's really part of what we've been talking about this week, that over the last 100 years, that battle you know, between church and state in terms of getting issues that impact on women, including sexual violence, um, onto 
the mainstream agenda where they're taken seriously uh, in the first place. Uh, as my colleagues on the panel here will say, it, when the Rape Crisis Centre, for instance, was established in the 1970s, one of the first things that had to be established was, was to convince people that there was a problem um, to begin with, uh, never mind you know, an awareness um, of the problem um, of rape, never mind sexual assault or sexual har harassment, as we've seen with the Me Too movement this year. So, so I suppose what I would say is, on the one hand, what you've described, I'm not surprised, given you know, the time. But on the other hand, uh, um, no, I'm not surprised that it wasn't. Um, addressed in the way you've described, because I still think, despite all the progress that has been made since the 1970s in particular, the setting up of the rape crisis centres in particular being critical, there's still an awful, an awful uh, long way to go. Some of it's about resources, um, how decisions are made about, you know, where uh, resources are put, whether that be women's refuge or um, supports for women. Some of it is about uh, the kinds of, I suppose, issues that were being discussed as well in the 1970s, that you know, it, it, it was okay to leave um, a violent situation if you could, that you didn't have to remain uh, within a marriage um, if, if the church or the confessional told you to. So I think whereas there's been huge progress um, made over a long period of time, there's still an awful long way to go. Uh, and also there is still a huge problem with with um, um, sexual assault and rape in society, as we've seen this year. There's supposed to be a second uh, Savvy report uh, next year, and I think the new evidence will show, at least give us some kind of comparator in terms of what has changed, if anything. Um, and I suspect not much has changed between Savvy 1 and Savvy 2. And do you want to comment on um, this? <clears throat> yeah, I think we have to remember we um, our state has evolved from a time when women were seen as the chattels of their husband and the property and um, women were owned by their husbands or partners and that included our bodies, our reproductive rights, our bodily integrity. We di didn't and still don't have complete autonomy um, and I think that the, the battle around the Eighth Amendment has actually shifted consciousness and awareness of society on that but it's still reflected out there in for example the fight over the national maternity hospital and i think it was reflected in the some of the discourse around the cervical cancer um debacle and the right of women to have information i mean the male gynecologist deciding well maybe you shouldn't be told that you might die from cancer etc etc so the patriarchy still rules. Men still think that they have the power to make decisions in our best interests because they know best. And if you have that psyche as a man, it will be possibly reflected in some bad decisions you might make in that you can um, take ownership of a woman's body against her will. I think that is the kind of environment in which the rape culture exists. Um, Mary, what do you think? In some ways, I think we're, by, by asking that question, Vincent, and it's a very good one, it's very interesting because it's probably the biggest problem that we're all aware of, that we haven't yet been able to effectively address with feminism. And I think it underlies probably all the other problems we've had. And when Anne and I met back in the 70s, we met in Women's Liberation, and in the, the original women's liberation movement. And as Anne has said, at that time, it was like living in a, a fortress. Women lived in a fortress. We could hardly get outside our door. 
We hadn't divorce, we hadn't abortion, we hadn't gender freedom, we hadn't sexual orientation freedom, no gay rights, nobody had even heard the word at that time. It was hard to know where to start. And we started one by one with each of those issues and every single one of them we have revolutionized, except perhaps violence against women. And yet we were conscious of it, so conscious of it already at that time. Because in Irish Women United, which Anne and I went on to, to form after the Women's Liberation Movement back in 75, was it, Anne? Mm -hmm. So many women came to that movement and spoke to us at our Sunday meetings in private, as it were. The ordinary women. They always introduced themselves as the ordinary women because they weren't involved in any way. They weren't in a political group. And they poured out their hearts. And we, amongst ourselves, we had consciousness-raising groups, you know, which came from America, and it often gets a bad rap over here because people think it's self-indulgent and sentimental. They were extraordinarily political and useful and revolutionary because we began to talk to each other about our secrets, about our shames, about all the <coughs> hidden things in Irish life. And what we understood when we talked to each other in that situation was that these were not individual failings, as almost every one of us growing up in the 60s and 70s, and to some extent now also. Everything that was difficult for a woman, we were encouraged to think was a personal failing, especially if you get raped or beaten up. It mm. must be something that you did. So we addressed those issues one by one, and we were probably more aware of them as feminists than anybody else in the country, because the victims talked to us. So we had a huge burden of responsibility. And I want to pay tribute to Nula Fennell, who started Women's Aid, the original Women's Aid, and Anne O'Donnell, who started the Rape Crisis Center, yeah. both of them involved with us in, first of all, Women's Liberation, and then Irish in Women Irish Women United. So certainly, violence against women is the big issue. And I think it underlies all the other issues. Because all the, all, the, all the issues that women are bullied about and oppressed about and ashamed of, really, are they, are they posited on the fact that if you don't watch your tongue, you're going to get beaten up. If I don't like what you're saying, I'll make a joke first. I'll put my arm around you. I'll give you a wink. I'll nudge you, you know? And if you really keep going like this, and if you really seem serious or aggressive, and if you push this argument, and especially if you win it by logic, and especially if you bring the facts to bear, especially if you bring out a survey as you have, Vincent, that's when you might get the fist in your face, because you're going too far mm. at that point. And I think every woman in the hall here knows that experience, has that moment of fear when we think, Maybe I'm going too far here. Maybe I shouldn't say that. Maybe I'm overstepping the limit here. Maybe I'm straining somebody's patience. And always when we sit up on a panel like that, that this, we're conscious of that too. You know, we're sticking our necks out. I think above nine version of that as well is the, um, and I think it's a great word, and fair play to the young women who have brought it forward as mansplaining. Yes. <laughs> that is the benign version. I'll explain how you feel, what you think, what you want to say, where you want to go. Um, I think it's great. It's a great word, but that's, as I say. spreading is good too. Yeah, true. <laughs> yes, Vincent. Don't do any of it up here today now. 
Yes, his legs crossed. In the next uh, few years, we'll hear a lot about the fight for Irish independence and about our, sorry, the fight for Irish freedom and uh, us getting our freedom in 1922. Did the Irish women get their freedom in 1922? <laughs> no. Over to you, Linda. You go. <laughs> I'll start. Um, Absolutely not. I suppose this week has been particularly poignant, you know, because it's been such a celebration. But I suppose there is a bittersweet dimension to it too, which we have to focus on as well. And they're the hard questions about the performance of the state in the last hundred years. We're not just celebrating um, our history as we would like it to be today. We have to look critically um, at the legacies of the past. So really, you know, again... Um, there's been a lot of discussion really by many commentators, academics, about what happened in the period after independence. The, 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 the phrase I like to use is that the women were taken out um, in the sense that you see progressively from the 1920s on into the 1930s, culminating I suppose really in the 1937 constitution, a whole series of pieces of legislation that, a bit like what you're describing, Mary, I suppose, really confined women and limited, um, you know, their ambitions, their capacities to full participation in the kind of independent state that has been, was being established. Very practical examples of that would be, um, you know, the right of women to sit on juries, for instance, all male juries, what we call manals. Um, today, it would be an all-male all mm. jury, the marriage bar. Um, censorship of publications, which effectively meant you you couldn't, you know, write about contraception or um, fertility control, as it used to be called, um, reproductive choice, all these things, uh, the right of women to participate, uh, to be employed in certain industries. And then most of all, the clause that we were supposed to be voting on in September when we uh, returned Michael D. Higgins to the Dole, but it has been postponed and is, I believe, going to be a very controversial debate in 2019. Um, Article 41.2.2, woman by her life within the home, gives to the state a support uh, without which the common good uh, cannot be achieved. So two things there, not uh, women by their work, it was woman by her life, that is all women um, by by their life in the home as opposed to their work, which would be a much more socialist or, or, or I suppose, social policy way of looking at it, because it's work, it has an economic value. Um, but this idea that the common good would collapse if women left the home uh, in large numbers. Well, they were right. We'll come back to that issue about the women in the home thing because I think there's another perspective from that. Go on. But the new state, uh, think about it, probably the radical leadership was taken out, some by execution. Yes. Um, We have read the writings, man and all as he was, of James Connolly, who spoke about the the need to have emancipation for women and what kind of society we wanted to build post uh, the achievement of independence. So... Um, I think that contributed because a lot of change is a question of leadership. Who, who are the ones who are going to lead? And uh, as I say, they disappeared. And also, um, uh, a small island occupied by a bigger island uh, with un- underdeveloped economy, resources, post the, second, the First World War, Europe coming through a period of fascism and reaction, all of that kind of environment in which the new state tried tried to uh, emerge. Uh, it's not excusing the decisions that were making because they were very profoundly restrictive and anti-democratic and hurt women. Um, but they perhaps explain it 
uh, and the overdue reliance on church to deliver education and healthcare, and all of that uh, created um, a, a state structures and institutions in which we were combined, co confined. So that, let's say by the time we got to the late 60s, early 70s, foreign direct investment, the economy starts to change, and uh, we were the children of free education, and we emerged and we thought, great, we can have X, Y, and Z, only we couldn't. We couldn't have equal pay, we couldn't have access to certain jobs, we couldn't have the right to sit in a jury, we couldn't, we couldn't, we couldn't. And I want to pay tribute to gay and lesbian women who couldn't advocate or determine their, or, uh, declare their sexuality. And, and, and women like Mary Dorsey here, you know, uh, combined with those of us from the labour and trade union movement, um, championed, championed the fight back against that. And um, I hope when we continue to record our history that that role uh, in particular is, is, is acknowledged because it was absolutely essential. And I think Mary Dorsey is um, articulate now. She, you want to see her when she was in her early 20s and she's still the same. Um, that strong, determined voice of, of, of gay women, you know, stepping out there. And, um, yeah. Was uh, there any sense of a women's liberation movement in the early 1920s when it was perceived that, it, that freedom didn't really, really mean much to the women of Ireland at the time? Mary? Um, I, I, I don't know, Vincent, I'll come back to that because I'd like to respond to Anne there because I think it's important maybe for you to have some sense of our history. I haven't seen Anne for a long time, but I met her first in the Coffee Inn in the old Women's Liberation meeting. It was the last year of the meeting. And the moment Anne began to speak, I thought, I had been living in France and I'd just come back to Ireland and I'd just been desperate for, I'd been involved in student politics and socialist movements in France. And I was desperate for a bit of... Um, agro. Agro, yes. <laughs> a little bit of radicalism, a little bit of fight back, a little bit of spirit, a bit of fire, you know. And I thought, is there anybody in this country, you know, ready to stand up, especially to the power of the church? And Anne began to speak, and I thought, oh, there's a woman, you know. And I was just reminded now, because she always had this marvellous sense of structure, you know. And she always came in with the structure. She always stuck to the economy. She always stuck to the material, the facts of life. And that was such a wonderful bedrock. And it brought people back. Because, do you know, there were a few people now who might be wandering a little bit and might have been a little bit getting very excited and emotional. And Anne would always draw them back, you know. <laughs> so my focus, you know, I was always described as a radical feminist. And, of course, I was, had just come out at that stage through the sexual liberation movement that had held its first meeting, I think, six months before that in Trinity. And uh, I was determined to fight that good fight. And I was talking on the way in today and remembering, and I think it's something that needs to be said because it's rarely said, is that in those first 10 years, especially of the women's movement, there was no division uh, at a personal, at a friendship level between straight women and gay women. Mm -hmm. There was total acceptance of each other and total involvement, you know, inter-involvement and interaction between us. And very often it's assumed now when people are writing about it that there was a division. And on this subject, I'd like to say that Linda's wonderful book was reviewed by Mary Cullum, the distinguished historian. 
And there was just one thing I noticed at the time in that review. She was listing all the, the groups in Irish Women United, communists and trade unionists and republicans and the women's caucus and lesbians, she said. And I reared up immediately and I thought, God, do we still have to fight that fight? Lesbians were in every group. Exactly. <laughs> and lesbians still are in every group, which is the, you know, the word we still haven't got out there. Lesbians are grandmothers and mothers and children and daughters, and lesbians are the disabled, and lesbians are trade unionists, and lesbians are professors, and lesbians are academics, and lesbians are factory workers, you know. Lesbians are everywhere. They're old people and they're young people, and lesbians are in every group you'll ever be in. And the brilliant thing about the women's movement was that lesbians, right from the start, had a voice. And we called ourselves the International Lesbian Caucus just because it sounded very important, you know. We wanted to put the fear of God into people, you know, that it was an international. And caucus, of course, was what they called themselves in America, so we did it too. So Anne was especially supportive about that. And I remember when we first met and talked about Irishmen United forming it together, and Anne chose the name. And I remember you said, I'll bring the communists and the trade unionists, Mary, and you bring the radical and the gay sisters. <laughs> and I did and you did. Mm. Mm. And we worked together brilliantly. And I think we set a standard for the women's movement, really, for how things operated from then on. But how about my question? Um... <laughs> oh, well. How about my answer? <laughs> okay, Linda. Was there any signs of a women's liberation movement? In the, in the 1920s or 30s or 40s or 50s? Um, uh, there was, is the answer. This is what's very interesting about the, the, the achievement of the vote in 1918. It w was hugely significant, but there was a women's movement before 1918, in fact, right back to the 1860s, yeah. and there was one for decades after as but well. Did, but what so, did it do in the 19... After it got to the vote, it seemed yeah, to have thought, I, that's fine now, we we'll go home. Um, huh? I, I would love if Margaret Ward was here. She's not, um, because Margaret really, I suppose, has looked very closely in a biographical sense at the lives of those women who chose to continue with their feminism, perhaps in a period, the 20s, the 30s, the 40s, you know, in, where it was, it was more, much more difficult. Um, Margaret spoke the other day as well about activists like Winifred Parney, again, last night, wow, wasn't she great? She went for election. But there was no discussion of what happened to her after you know, 1922, a lot of these women, they couldn't get jobs, um, you know, because of their uh, geographic location, but because of what they had done. You know, many, you know, we've, we, you know, we've read about Markovich. Well, that's true, but, you know, they couldn't, you know, they, it, life became very, very difficult for many of them. But they did continue, you know, if you look at the records, Katrina Bowman, for instance, has written about all the various oppositions to the Juries Act. Again, when you look at the 1937 Constitution, there was quite an organised campaign um, against um, the clauses that went in, and even a rolling back of certain clauses. So what you have, I suppose, is a network, perhaps a looser network. Um, 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 this is what happens. It's a little bit what happened, I suppose, in the 1980s after the 1986 and 83 referenda. You know, the political climate becomes more hostile, and there is an element of retreat, regrouping, some people leave, they emigrate. Women have emigrated in huge numbers mm. um, from this country at times when it's just become too 
difficult, too hostile, too patriarchal, if there's such a word. Um, and um, so I think that was very much part of what happened. But there was still a network of feminists, many of whom had been there um, for the suffrage campaign. They were there in the 1920s. But then we get, I suppose, when we look at the late 1930s and 1940s, we also see a fusion yeah, between... Um, I suppose some of the later groups that emerged in the late 1960s that were perhaps a little bit different to Irish Women United and, and Women's Lib, as it was called at the time, there was a group who had been there from the 1940s. I'm thinking in particular of Hilda Tweedy, yes. who was involved yes, in the Irish Housewives Association, yeah. um, who was a communist, actually, even though the Housewives um, um, label sounds conservative. They were not a conservative group at all, but they were very involved in things like provision, what I would call provision, things like the price of milk, um, the rights of the laundry workers, um, all of these kinds of things. So, so I suppose, in a, in a, to get back to the economic as well, and I think, you know, in a, in a climate where, you know, there's high levels of emigration, poverty, poor housing, in, a, in some ways the bread and butter issues um, come to the fore, perhaps more than uh, what we might call today identity politics or more rights-based principles. Um, and th these women were very active. Hilda Tweedy is very interesting because she was there in the 40s, the 50s, and was pivotal in lobbying the government to, uh, with other groups, the Irish Association of Widows, very interesting groups, uh, the Seroptimists, the ICA were there as well. They all lobbied um, the Taoiseach at the time, uh, Jack Lynch, to set up uh, the first commission on the, the status, status of, of women. women. Yeah, which I suppose was a blueprint um, and, and you have that interesting tension, a, a productive tension, I should say, between the women who worked through the state from the outset um, and, and then the women who were... Wanted to challenge it. Protesting, <laughs> yeah. direct action, you know, trying to really, I suppose, show up the absurdity um, of some of uh, the laws that had been established from the 1920s to the 1930s. So what you see is, I suppose, a window in the late 1960s um, that opened up around these groups that were there for, for several decades, um, alongside the this, this sort of more radical kind of activism, um, street protests, that was more typical of the, 19, the, the, the new social movements. Why didn't the that window open up? And why didn't that window open up earlier? And what happened, particularly in the 60s, that allowed it to be opened up? Well, um, I didn't... I mean, it's a personal opinion. I think life was very difficult. It was hard. Uh, women had fought against the 37 constitution and, and lost that battle and I think in the next decade as Linda said a number of women emigrated my own I'm the child of a migrant worker I often remind myself my own mother emigrated went to Britain for a number of years and only returned in in the 50s but in the 60s I think it was well, something was beginning to happen in the economy. Maybe didn't really take off the late 60s, early 70s, but there was the rise of protest movements, um, the solidarity with the struggle, Vietnam War, uh, the women's liberation movement in the mid-60s, the um, rise of the civil rights movement in Northern Ireland. Um, I know, and, and yes, radicalization of students, France, May 68. I can recall that when I, that's what stimulated me, was all this, you know, activity happening and it was speaking to me in terms of my own alienation from the kind of society I was growing up in and certainly the rise of the women's movement very personally and directly spoke to me uh, as a young woman 
uh, dealing with a, a number of issues. So I think that is why it happened. You know, we, you know, we didn't just exist in isolation. You know, we're a small island, yeah. but in a world that was very fluid and in flux and a lot of lot of uh, struggles emerging. And they did influence us. I mean, we didn't have the internet and social media, but we did get our hands on left-wing papers. We did travel to conferences. We did, um, we, we read books, um, we watched the TV, we heard the songs of the 60s, the anti-war uh, Some of us traveled only 90 miles up the road and, 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 and made contact with women, particularly from the Catholic nationalist population who were being severely discriminated against. So all of that kind of fer ferment and, 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 and activity certainly stimulated us. And we had big debates about all yes, of this. Mary yes, will huge, remember huge, huge debates. debates at that time. But isn't, isn't part of this too that, um, Linda, I know that you, you will, I'm sure, agree with this, that women are continually written out of history. So if we say, why wasn't there anything happening? Yeah. You can be sure that there was something happening. And it's only now that we have feminist uh, scholars and historians who are painstaking uncovering all this. And we know from really painful experience how we are written out in our lifetime. Mm -hmm. And that already the activities of the 70s, 80s, 90s are Almost ancient forgotten. history and the names are forgotten. And this happens in every generation. Well, Katrina Crow is going to yes. make sure it's recorded. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Only for women. Exactly. Like Linda and Katrina yes. Crow, we're yes. the activists. And all the brilliant academics. We don't write it down, but they do. Many of you working. So the second point is, just to use a, a personal example, I, my mother, we had five children. I'm the youngest of five, and she was widowed when I was seven. She had been a civil servant, and she, um, of course, had to give up work when she was married. And then when she was widowed, she tried to get back into the civil service. But as you all know, the marriage bar, which apparently originated in Britain, they had it till about 1910 or something. They, they had a marriage bar, same expression. She couldn't get back into the civil service. So that was one of the things that I really wanted to change, the marriage bar, because I thought, isn't this unbelievable? If, if you're a woman, you can't work because you're married, and then you can't work because you're not married. You know, because you're a widow. And when, when did we finally get rid of the marriage bar? It was the 80s, the 80s. So, just to continue with that example, my mother would have been a young woman in the, in the 30s. And because she grew up before independence, she didn't have the full weight of the Catholic Church and Catholic indoctrination on her shoulders and in her mind as she was growing up. Because, as some of you know, I came out in the 70s and caused national scandal and disgraced my family and everybody that my mother knew stopped talking to her, literally stopped you, talking you, you to her. You came me. out, you One, said, uh, was that because you were voting Fianna Fáil at the time? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Never. <laughs> no. And it was extraordinarily painful in some ways for me, but I had my whole tribe and my wonderful gang and, you know, wonderful, wonderful partners who I, to whom I owe a great deal. But um, if you were out in the suburbs or um, a middle-aged person at that time, you had no defense and you had no support and she had no support. But many, 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 many times over the years when I've been talking in public, people have asked me, you know, how was it possible for you to do this? And how was it that your mother accepted you? Because she did. She cried for three days and couldn't speak for three days. And she hadn't been silent after my father's death. But when she read in the Irish Times that this self-confessed lesbian 
had described heterosexuality as sadomasochism. <laughs> she was silenced for three days, and eventually she talked. And luckily, she, my, my grandmother had been a Republican and a feminist and knew all the Republican girls at the time. So she knew Kate O'Brien and Mrs. French Mullen and all these. And I think my mother would have known that there were women who preferred each other's company and who could make a lifelong commitment to one another. What she didn't know was that they could have a sexual relationship. And that was the big shock. And that was a huge mountain to climb for her. But to her eternal credit, she did climb it. And I, I, in recent years, I like to pay tribute to her because she was the first adult woman in Ireland to actually accept the gay people in her house and befriend my friends and my partners, which made it possible for me. But the reason I'm mentioning it is because most of my friends' mothers would have been about 10 years younger. She had me when she was 41. They would have been about 10 years younger. And their mothers grew up under the most intense patriarchy, probably, that the world has ever known as oppressive as the Russian state under Irish Catholic patriarchy at that time, which wasn't accidentally oppressive. It was deliberately and calculatedly and continually repressive of women. Everything in our constitution, everything in our laws was influenced by that. And the women who grew up under that, who would have been the mothers of my friends, were so ashamed of their own sexuality. I mean, nobody had a sex life in Ireland until gay people went on television. Nobody had ever heard of anal sex until gay people went on television. You couldn't mention a condom in Ireland when I came out as a lesbian. There was no sex in Ireland, you know, until there were David Norris and a few others. So how could those women have supported their daughters? And they didn't, sad to say. And most of my peers at that time were silenced and very damaged because of it. And we can only thank all of the women involved in the women's movement ever since, decade after de decade after decade, who have brought about, have brought about this extraordinary change, the benefit of which we're all reaping now. You know, our two great referendums, marriage equality and repeal the eighth. And it's transformed us, but it's not finished, quote Bertie. I think it would be remiss of me not to add into those uh, the names of those women who um, we want to pay tribute to uh, my own um, uh, unofficial mother-in-law, Sylvia Meehan, who was of a generation um, who were the widows who went into the labour and trade union movement and the late 60s, 70s, laid the foundation for a lot of the positive action policies that we forced the brothers in the trade union movement to adopt. Um, and there were, uh, you know, scores of women inside the workplace in trade unions, not famous women, not known, uh, we still don't know some of their names, who worked over those decades, late 40s, 50s, 60s, if you go and read the... Um, history of individual trade, particular trade unions in among the pages and pages and photographs of men, you'll see the names of women and, you know, the positions they held and the late May Clifford who led the battle to get to win the uh, fortnight's uh, holidays um, for, for working women. And it is those women that I know Katrina is particularly focused on and has uh, uncovered so much information which we have to... Um, 
to pay tribute to uh, they, their experiences and their lives. I know Katrina came to speak to us at a women's conference there, the ICTU Women's Conference, North and South. Um, uh, we meet and uh, she gave a wonderful uh, exposition of the suffrage movement and then the journey uh, women took towards fighting inside um, organised labour. It's a battle we still are fighting, but we have moved uh, substantially uh, forward. But we did so learning the lessons of the women's movement, learning the lessons of you know the need to advocate, the need to raise consciousness, the re need to create positive action strategies, the need to have structures that allow women to come together, women's committees, development of policies. And as I said, there are scores of women, some of those uh, we rem whose names we know, and I, as I said, uh, hundreds who, whom we don't, who actually all par formed Vincent part of this journey uh, to the kind of successes we've had now with the wins we've had with the two referendum. Because uh, remember, we were sam sam sandwiched in between defeats. If somebody asked me, what do I remember my journey and my life through you know, as a feminist, it's been sandwiched in between defeats and finally breaking out of that this year it was glorious uh, because we the constitution was used as a weapon mm. against us mm. it was a sword not a shield and our human rights which are supposed to be protected that's what constitutional rights and human rights are were actually turned uh, were denied us uh, by virtue of you know the, the clauses in the constitution and i mean we lived through political coups I mean, the 1983 referendum was a political coup by the right. Mm -hmm. They terrified the establishment into putting something into the constitution which led to 35 years of actual misery and, 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 and led to our fight back. So, you know, um, anyway, I've lost my train of thought. Catholic state for a Catholic people. Exactly. That's what we endured. So, you know, uh, that, that's how I would reflect on, 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 on the journey. But it's, it's, it's great to be in, in a in a period now where um, we're, we're in a success period and now we have to build on that mm. and, 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 and take courage. And also, I want to pay tribute to the young women um, because maybe less like, uh, unlike us, we, we didn't really know how to challenge for power. We knew how to confront authoritarianism and repression but we really didn't know how, to, you know, how to seek out power, get it, and use it. But I think the young women of today have learned that lesson as feminists. It is about power. It's about chasing power, seeking power, taking power, and using power. I think though it's important to say, if I could just say that. that um, so I was in secondary school until 1988. So I was. Um, too young to be in, in, in the women's movement oh, myself. <laughs> You're forgiven. I was a baby in the 70s, but uh, I was born in 71, actually, when the Irish Women's Liberation Movement came to the fore. Anyway, I'm a child of that. Um, but I think it's very important that when I, at my generation as well, when I, I was in secondary school, when all was this mm -hmm. was going on, and we weren't unaffected either. And part of, I suppose, the political consciousness of my generation was yes. seeing Joanna Hayes on the late late show, mm -hmm. sitting beside my grandmother, and that are just the kind of the shock, mm. and that politicised, I think, our generation. We were, we were too young to be, yeah. and then the Anne Lovett case. Girls our age are, are not that much um, older, and I suppose what 
certainly, I think you're right about power. For me, the power was in writing, absolutely, was in, in writing and telling that story because we were, I was just so interested in everything that had happened when I started writing in the early 1990s. Um, but it was, I suppose, what happened in the previous generations that impacted on our consciousness to then enable us to move on and take the next steps, even though it was in the early 1990s, which was still a very difficult period, but in the X case, if you remember, the first mm. kind of big, I suppose, I don't want to use the word victory because it was appalling what happened, but again, it was a slight step for forward if you think about the way in which the X case led to a whole other um, level of activism in, in USI, um, etc. There was another referendum. So I see the kind of the, 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 the incremental, the kind of shift in consciousness from gener generation to generation um, over time um, is really, really important. And the, the previous steps, if you like, create the conditions from which to move on um, yes, at the yes, next stage. Very much. Yeah. We all build on each other's shoulders. Yeah. And that's why it's so important to have it documented. And we should, shouldn't be paying some tribute to Sinead here today to put mm, together absolutely. this brilliant exhibition that represents so much work, tireless work over years, painstaking and sometimes thankless work because it's so detailed. And she's just one example of the many academics we have now who, who are doing this work and forcing the wider society to realize, yes, that actually women have always expressed their voice and have done all within their power to express their position. Um, Thank you, Sinead. Uh, <laughs> the women's movement seemed to have lost momentum in the 1970s, and that was probably why that why the abortion, the insertion of uh, Article Eight of the Eighth Amendment was um, inserted in the Constitution, and there wasn't. Uh, there wasn't that much protest, certainly not effective protest, to stop it. Would, do you agree that the women's no. movement lost momentum? No. Okay, go ahead. No, um, I think... Um, <clears throat> well, the train journey and the exposure of um, the hypocritical <laughs> situation in the southern state here... You mean the pill uh, train? The pill train. Um, brought to the fore the big questions. I think the women's movement, I mean, we're a poor country. We didn't have resources. We didn't have, you know, uh, women's council. We didn't have funding. Uh, we didn't have independent structures of the state. We didn't have any of that. We didn't have uh, childcare. We didn't have child, exactly. Uh, we didn't have equal pay, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I think in, in that context, we, we continue to fight back because Irish Women United set up the Contraception Action Programme and um, we opened a shop and confronted the law. They didn't close us down or arrest us. Um, and was central to that. Yeah. Well, and we took a caravan around the country and gave out contraceptive advice. So we were burrowing away all the time, forcing the establishment to address the question and how he did eventually in 1979 and the clinics I have to say the professional people the medics and the nurses the doctors who were liberally committed to the idea of family planning and contraception they played a great role as well because under the 
under the, uh, the, the radar, they ran these clinics and they provided the services. Uh, so we were living in a kind of, in a big contradiction, because on the one hand, um, contraception was illegal, and on the other hand, we were actually beginning to kind of provide a service, but only to a certain uh, layer of women, because poorer women in the big working class communities were finding it more and more difficult. I think the 70s was marked by the political cowardice and reactionary politics of the establishment, of the parties who were holding power. I mean, what's his name? Cosgrave crossed the floor of the Dáil to vote against his own legislation in the 70s. Um, the labour and trade union movement hesitated. Um, they were nervous uh, of causing, uh, you know, fermenting fury in their own ranks. I... I lived in that world and fought that fight. So I think, um, and the left was weak. Uh, Social Democrats uh, didn't have a strong enough voice or a strong enough place in the political uh, institutions, parliaments or, or councils, or, you know, really to force change through. So I don't think you, you, could, you could, you know, what happened in the 70s uh, was because of all of that. And in the middle of all of that, um, and don't forget, that was the period of the heavy the gang, north. do you remember? And the crisis in the north. And you in particular, I have to say, Vincent, um, really exposed a lot of, of, of what was going on, uh, subsequently writing about that and making us understand the kind of repressive society we were living in. I think the women's movement did very well. I mean, we kept the momentum going. We eventually forced the legalisation of contraception. Uh, we then went on to start the first abortion referral and counselling centre. Uh, now, some people, the some of the liberal intelligentsia blamed us for the 1983 uh, constitutional amendment, said it was our fault we went too far. Well, I don't think that was the case. I think it was the political cowardice of those who should have stepped forward and taken up that fight that left us where we were. The 80s, we were depressed, but we but kept going. There were all, all the single-issue groups that were set up in the 80s yes. that came as a direct result of the yeah. 70s. The Rape Crisis That's Centre, right. Women's right. Aid, what others? There's, there's a list of them. Association, AIM, yes. yes, and they were tremendously effective. Advocacy organisations working on legislative change. I think the, di the difficulty there in the 80s was that they were all, became funded by the state and then to some extent they had to you know, curtail themselves yes. to, to please whatever government exactly. was in power because they were dependent on funding. And the reason, of course, we were able to be so radical and so outspoken and so powerful as in the 70s was because we did it all for nothing. Not a single feminist in our day made a, a pound out of it, you know. So that's got to be remembered. It was, it, it was a, a development because it was diffusion of our energy all through the 80s. I mean, in one way, it was a victory because it was spread out through the community and because those groups all came from issues that we had identified in the 70s. Because we really were a group of analysts in the 70s. There was brilliant analysis done, which is still, you can see, listening to Anne, you can see how it's, how it's uh, stood the test of time, that analytic ability. And we laid the groundwork for that. And I would say, you know, that if, if there's one word of praise to be given rather than any other to the Irish women's movement, it's that we're the first movement in Ireland, and I think the only one, and the only one that was successful, to confront the power of the Catholic Church head on. And we were absolutely determined in that, and absolutely without shame or fear, 
And we did it at a personal level and we did it at a political level mm -hmm. and we recognized and identified the Catholic Church at that time as the main force of oppression in our country, both psychologically and structurally. And that was where we had to start. I think the 1983 referendum, it, it, it needs to be rethought, I think, in light of, of recent mm -hmm. developments as well. And I think it's very important to keep reappraising you know, what has happened and, and to keep retelling the stories because each time we do, you know, we come up with, I suppose, more analysis. And I suppose the, the, I would bring it back to the Constitution. We could say the Constitution really hasn't served, you know, women well and that this was just another example mm. over the longer period of the Constitution being used to, the, the sociologist in me would say, would be to, to kind of it's wishful thinking, really, to, to try and define women's position in a very restricted way. The McGee case, though, um, advanced things on the contraception score. That was the Constitution. That was a Supreme it, Court judgment. Yeah. It, it was, yes. But I suppose the, the, the point being that even though in 1983 the Constitution had this clause, that didn't mean that, number one, women stopped having abortions. They still continue to go to the UK. They still do. Um, and secondly, you know, it, all it did was... Uh, bring about a change of tactics. So the tactics then changed from uh, into uh, the provision of abortion information um, and then secondly the, the, the abortion referral. So the subversion of the law then becomes around uh, providing the information to Irish women in Dublin or Cork or whatever but also actually physically setting up mm. uh, the appointments. Now that was also challenged later in the High Court. So I uh, suppose sometimes the, the, the referenda and the constitution are very important, but they don't always, I suppose, prescribe the activism or the way in which women live their lives in the meantime. Often the legal changes um, are simply catching up on what has been long established mm -hmm. in women's lives. So with contraception, women were using contraception before... 1985. Irregular periods. Do you remember how they, irregular the, everybody was? The cycle was. regulator, yes. <laughs> they had terrible problems with their cycles, women in the 1970s. So there were loopholes. So, so, so absolutely, these battles around the Constitution, don't get me wrong, they're really important, symbolically, mm -hmm. politically, but, but they don't define the way in which activism continues or the way or the choices uh, that, that women make. And that option of going to England since 1967 was always there. I think what changed in more recent years, and I know certainly what changed the, the mindset of a lot of people to a pro-choice position was, it wasn't just these kind of you know, young ones who got pregnant and had to rush off to England. Mm. It, was, it became an issue about safety in our maternity yes. hospitals. Yes. The idea that you could go in to have a so-called wanted baby and end up dead because of the Eighth Amendment shifted yes. and, mm. the and whole learning analysis. that the majority of women who went for abortion in England were married women and mothers yeah, yeah. and that had been hidden of course yeah. as another reason just to to um, control women and control the popular view of the situation by pretending it was just young careless stupid girls got themselves into trouble Emily O'Reilly as well talks about the, 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 the role of the right internationally um, mm. you know, and, and how that had nothing to do with the women's movement in a sense, but the right had focused explicitly on the question of abortion. They still do. Yeah. Roe versus Wade in America. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that, followed, that the, yeah. the uh, right-wing groups here yeah. uh, said probably correctly that 
um, that with the liberalisation of con- the, the regime of contraception, that the, the, the next step would be uh, abortion. And that's why right. the... <laughs> yes. That's why right the, uh, about a few things. I remember going to the 40 foot, going out to the 40 foot, you know, that was one of our continual um, insurgent <laughs> actions in the 70s and we were beaten up regularly and thrown into the water or tried to throw us into the water. <laughs> and they'd always shout, the lads would be always shouting, lads of all ages, lots of them middle-aged men, showing us their heavy artillery, you know, they'd be naked and they'd produce these very small organs, you know, between their legs, you know, no oh, girls, the heavy artillery coming out. And they say, load of fucking lezers, a load of fucking lezers. And they had no idea it was true. That was a great joke about that. <laughs> they would have died of shock if they'd known. I don't think they knew what lesbians were at the time. No. Well, <laughs> Something so was that 40 foot, was that 40 foot thing just a caper or was there forcing the men to back down at the time? Was that significant, do you think? The backing down. Uh, uh, well, maybe yeah. that's an unfortunate yeah, I think socially, culturally, yeah. it was. Personally, it was. Yes, it was important. It was. And we also went to... What's the name of the Fitzwilliam? Was it oh, the Tennis Club? Yes, yes, um, yes. A bastion of privilege, <laughs> drawing, uh, and, drawing and, and male privilege, and we painted a bit. And I remember trade union colleagues saying to me, "Men, what are you going there for? They're a bunch of toughs." And I, and I said, <laughs> "Anywhere where a woman can't go, yes. we're going." And, because and, it, and also yes. going into pubs. Yes. And, and, not, and, and uh, regret, huh? not being able to buy a beer in a big glass. We had to yeah, buy it in a small, small glass an and all of that. And we said, we're not having any of it. And it was important to point out to um, the serious men of the trade union movement that these things were important to us in terms of being human beings, of just having it. But also it was important to us economically. Uh, because if you bought two small glasses yep. of beer, it cost you more yes. than beer in a big glass. Yep. So we weren't stupid about these no. things. You know, we understand, understood the economics yeah. of it as well. Well, to go back to the 40 foot just for a moment, it wasn't a superficial thing because no. what it meant was that children who were female couldn't come in either. Mm. Yeah. And all yeah. the local people, gradually the local women began to come in. And I must say the local fathers, when they realised that when, if they brought in their girl children, that made life better for them. They could actually bring their son and their daughter with them. And that was a huge cultural change. And the whole atmosphere around that area, which I know very well changed. But again, while we're paying tribute, again, I'd like to mention Nula Fennell, no longer with us, sadly. Uh, she, she wasn't, yeah, but Nula, I remember, because mm. she used to come charging down and she dived very well and she'd run straight off the diving board. <laughs> and, the and we were never allowed to get up on the diving board. That was another thing. So we had the famous 40-foot invasion, and I, mm. I love rowing and boats. I grew up with boats. So we had a land, sea, and air invasion. And I came round with my boat with a couple of others, and they couldn't prevent you coming in from the sea because they didn't own it. And then we had the aerial invasion with people going off the diving board, Nulo Fennell and Sandra Stevens, who's now in America, holding an umbrella. Holding an umbrella. Mm -hmm. And then we had the, which was the other one, the the land, sea, and air. Yeah, just breaking in the door, you know, and having flour thrown at us and God oh, knows no. what. The other person who was great for that was Nell. She used to come running down, you know, even, even when in a very cross mood, Nell would still come charging down, throw herself into the water. And she was one of the few who could stay in the water for an hour because it was absolutely freezing. 
and there'd, there'd be women who came to protest and they'd be creeping down, clutching onto the ladder and saying, do I really have to get in, you know? And they'd just dip in a toe. And we'd say, don't scream, whatever you do, don't scream, you know, just stay there, you know? And they'd come out again as quick as they could, but Nell would be floating. How important was Nell in the feminist movement? Immensely. Yes, very much so. Um, ovarian, as we used to say, not seminal, ovarian, we used to say, an ovarian. An passionate, ovarian brave, determined, outspoken, outspoken controversial, cranky, yeah. uh, stimulating. Um, brilliantly brilliant. eloquent, brilliantly yeah. eloquent. I, I, in the first year, my first year in Women's Liberation, I used to go around with her, accompany her, because yeah. she liked somebody to come with her when she was giving her talks around the country. And I learned so much from her and, and so much in the talks afterwards because that was when people would come up, including the priests. The priests used to come up and start talking about their problems of you know, being homosexual or whatever. The difficulty they had with celibacy. Again, people poured out their hearts in those. And, and Nell was endlessly patient in those, in those sessions. Everywhere mm. you went with Nell, people would be coming up looking for help. So she was an absolute firebrand when she was up on the stage. And then enormously patient and generous at, in the one-to-one. -one. And that was all through the 70s. And I think Mary Marr should be remembered. I yes, know she was so to Mary. join us today, a fine mm. journalist. And I used to really look forward to reading her in the Irish mm, yes. Times. Mm. And Mary Holland and yes, all Mary those Holland. women who actually... Mary Kenny. Mary Kenny, who uh, went in a different straight, direction. Straight, a little bit straight. Straight. But at the time, all of those women uh, spoke for us, articulated, advocated what was in our heads and in our hearts and, 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 and spoke out there for us. Yeah, they were Maureen great. So uh, um, Maureen de Burke, yeah, all those women, um, really important. And, and yeah. most of them yeah. have remained in Irish public life. Yeah. Yeah. And the Maureen de Burke case careers. was another case where the court intervened on the side of women mm. too. And that was an important victory. Mm. That was uh, at the time only men were allowed in juries and she challenged uh, that act and it, it said the, yeah. the Supreme Court found it unconstitutional. No. But that was a significant advance there, as well. You know, in every walk of life there are people with demo good democratic instincts, be they, you know, trade union leaders, judges, politicians, you know, the problem was uh, they were in the minority. There weren't enough of them. Um, uh, so we had to get behind those who were prepared to step forward. Mary Robinson was a wonderful advocate um, and has been and is even to this day in terms of the things that are important to humanity. But we had to get behind them, uh, make the noise around them and, and, and impel them and give them support okay. while the rest of the establishment looked on and just, you know, uh, minded their own backyard. And what do you perceive as the big feminist issues now? Well, Long silence. Do you want to take that? Well, do I, I, I do. I think, um, I think from the point of view of women's sexuality and uh, our bodily autonomy, the modification of women's bodies and, and, and all that's happened to us and the, um, what's the word, the distortion of our fight for sexual independence and liberation is, is, is still a big issue, you know. The... Um, Pornography, the reliance of women on prostitution to economically survive, etc. I think, in terms of women's economic independence, uh, the impoverishment of you know 
thousands and hundreds of thousands of women, millions of women around the globe uh, is huge. Um, and um, the exploitation of women workers, um, I think, is, uh, is huge, uh, hugely important. So I suppose those two things, um, it's where I'm kind of, my attention is focused at the moment, particularly in the economic sphere. I mean, you know, the exploitation of women in the retail sector, um, zero hours contracts, which now affects uh, uh, men as well, but all of that kind of building, you know, entrepreneurs and owners of capital building economic success on the impoverishment of working people is really, um, it's, a, it's a feminist challenge because uh, it's mainly w women at work and women in the economy who are impoverished by this. Yeah. So I think we have to continue that fight. One of, one of the big challenges there, because the things I'd say that are most important for feminists are the things that are most important to human beings, and those would be still the nuclear threat, mm -hmm. then climate change, the destruction of our environment, and the development of AI. And in case any of you think that yeah. AI is something just off there in the corner, so that's going to directly mm -hmm. affect. There was a small report in the Irish Times the other day, and Ireland is very slow to come to these things and admit to them. And as a, a country, we're inclined to say, oh, don't get excited, it'll all work out, it'll be fine on the night, you know. And one of the civil service bodies has brought out a report saying the other day that 45% of jobs will be lost within yeah. 10 years yeah. with the development of AI. And in Irish society, we have to get going on this issue now. Mm. And two, two, two ways it'll affect women directly, three ways. One, it'll take women's jobs for sure, because a lot of the jobs are what are considered low-skill jobs, cleaning and manufacturing and so on. So that'll wipe out a whole cadre of, of women workers. The third, the second way, is the development of um, robotic, robotic sex dolls, robotic prostitutes, which is widespread already. You can get them online all over the world. They're being developed in, in Japan, principally Japan and, Japan, Japan and China are leading the way with this. And if you, if you, if you go on the net and look at them, they're extraordinarily uh, lifelike. And one of the really worrying things about AI is, and the, the people who are working on it say this themselves, that the AI, the robots, are being programmed, programmed the software, by young nerds, Men. male Men. nerds. So these robots are going to be intensely sexist. We could go back 200 years. Yeah because sexist jokes are being put into their heads, sexist divisions, sexist categories. The men have to look like men, the men are all going to be seven foot tall, and the women are going to be little pretty robots with little high-pitched voices, you know? And we'll have to deal with that all over again. Uh, Sarah-Anne has decided that you've talked enough. Oh, good. <laughs> you didn't want to say that, Vincent. <laughs> yeah, down there, yeah. Thank you, Sarah-Anne. Hi, I'm uh, Lucy McDermott from New York, and I've had a, a comment Brewing in my mind ever since uh, Vincent, you asked about what about you know women in earlier period before there were active feminist movements, and then um, Linda said if only Margaret Ward were here, and then I was thinking of what um, Anne was saying about the ferment of the sixties, and then finally coming back to what Mary Dorsey said about the scholars and academics and the audience are uncovering things, and so. I would just like to say that, well, also then related to 
what Katrina Crow has done with the Bureau of Military History and also the existence of the Military Pensions Board. There was always something going on, even if it wasn't like the ferment of the 60s. You can look at 1915 and 1916 and everything you can see in the eyewitness accounts in the Bureau of Military History of women in the rising. They're not using our language, but they met up with anti-feminist obstacles every moment. One of my favorite discoveries was of a woman who was so early arriving at the GPO, like one minute after 12. She wasn't with her Kumanaman unit. She wasn't allowed in the front door, so she jumped in a window on the side. And the accounts are full of things like this. So you can see feminist activism before that, that phrase was around. It's all there. It's all recorded. And when you get to the military pensions accounts, you see the women fighting not against the British and not against the volunteers, but against the um, bureaucrats on that board who don't want to give the women their pensions. And um, the less famous you are as a woman, that if you're not um, Kathleen Clark, Hannah Shee, if you're not one of the really known ones, you have a lot of trouble getting a pension. People don't believe that you were active um, uh, as a courier or, or whatever, cooking or whatever. And they, they, it's much harder for them to make their case, which is just like what Micheline Sheehy Skeffington found in Galway, it's harder for women to get promoted. So this was always going on, even, even if there isn't a visible um, movement, it's all there recorded. Um, there are also letters to De Valera from women um, complaining about the 1937 Constitution and reminding him of what they did in the Rising. So when there's not a network, there's not Twitter, there's not television, there are still all of these accounts in the archives of, of women who, um, who met with these obstacles and protested against them. Okay, thank you. There's yeah. a woman over there, I want yeah. to get in. Yeah. What do the panel think well, is the role of men in the women's movement? And what do they think we should, in the personal sphere, we should be saying to our brothers, our sons, our fathers, our grandfathers? Yeah, I just, I just want to link the two comments in a way. Um, Absolutely, Lucy, I totally agree with you. There is a lot of work, but where I would bring it back to perhaps the final question you asked, and it might relate to your question, um, you know, we're doing wonderful research and there's huge, what we used to call recovery work, has been done, and we know all of this. We know there's so much. Every time you drill down, you see the women are everywhere and they're doing everything um, all the time. But then, just to get to your question, where we can't let our eye off the ball then, so to speak, is that when we look at the structures... And you look at the structures of academia, for instance, 87% of um, professors of history in Ireland are male. Yep. That's astonishing today. Um, so I think to answer your question, I suppose, really, in a sense, you know, th that's, that's the question we need to be asking. Why are there not more? I managed to break through the glass ceiling, but I'm a, a minority, um, and I want more women. Um, okay you know, in these positions. So I think that's where um, the role of men has to come into this, and they have to respond, in a sense, those with power, um, to these kinds of appalling statistics um, that exist. I was going to say, they have to move over and um, give up some of their space. Um, but the role of men in the women's movement, I don't think there is any role. I think the role is to support, stand beside, behind, but never in front. Um, um, and I think that what we say to the men in our lives, and I live with one, is to say, speak out 
and stand up against that which is wrong, which hurts women. And when we ask for your support, give it to us. And where you have influence and power, use it to do the right thing. That's what uh, how about say. men's culture, the, the men's mindset? Um, for, to a significant extent, men regard women almost as sexual toys. And that, uh, that, is, that, is a, that is not true of all men, but it's still a pretty uh, vibrant uh, element in the masculine culture. Would you like to answer that? <laughs> <laughs> you should answer that yourself. Good idea. Very good. Yes. Well, I, 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 I'll ask you by another question. Can women's... Can women be fully liberated without men becoming feminists? Well, we've been asking that for a long time. And uh, one ray of hope is the number of men, young men especially, who were out on the repeal the eighth marches. I actually mm. always felt that yeah. we'd win that particular fight. But on the first march I was at, and I stood on O'Connell Bridge, and I saw the numbers coming towards me. And I saw the numbers who, for the first time ever, would have been not 50-50, but maybe 25, 75 young men, principally, supporting their girlfriends, their wives, their, their friends, their mothers. I saw a sea change in that, in the young men. Mm. But other than that, it's obviously up to men, and you could lead the way maybe as influential as you are. It's up to men to change themselves, and mm. you don't hear debate about this among and men, to do lead you? Other men do to we do hear that. public discussion of this? Is it something that men sit around and say, how can we help the women's movement? I don't know. I don't think I've ever heard it. I don't think I've ever heard uh, a debate entitled, how men can help women's liberation. No, I've never heard it talked about privately. I've never heard it talked about publicly. I would say that the particular thing I would ask of men, and I say it as someone who has a great many close male friends and had male partners in the past, and in my, in my youth, and have loved some men and have loved my three brothers and loved my father and still enjoy the company of male friends and have tremendous dialogue with them, I would still say that while they say the right thing in private when it's safe, They'll say it to somebody like me, but they won't say it to the bullying male in the group. And if a man is sitting in a group, if there are five men sitting and five women, and one or two of them start cracking sexist jokes, I want the so-called good men to turn around to that man and say, stop right there. That's insulting. That's endangering women. Stop right there. You know? But men haven't started to do that yet. They will not confront other men directly. And until men begin to do that, until if there are good men out there, if there are men who believe in freedom and equality of sexes, they have to start doing this, and they have to start doing it one by one, as we did as feminists. They have to start doing it in their families, they have to start doing it in their, with their friends, they have to start doing it with the jobs. And it's a very difficult thing to do. It's actually one of the most embarrassing things to do. And I'm sure every man in the room, if you think, and there aren't many of you, of course, and I wonder why, those few men who are here that it's almost easier to get up on a platform and shout or write an article to the paper or go on a protest march, but to turn to somebody you like and say, you've stepped over a line, and I won't stay in the room with you if you continue. So I want you to leave the room or apologize. When you say that to a male friend, when a male says that to a male friend, 
he feels endangered. He feels extremely embarrassed and vulnerable. And he doesn't do it. And he leaves it to one of the women to stick their neck out. And when you've stuck your, when you as a woman, when I or somebody with me sticks their neck out and challenges the man and the bully leaves eventually, then the other guys turn to me and say, oh, that was great, Mary. I wanted to support you there, you know, but I just couldn't get my ideas together fast enough. But that was great, you know? Can I just add to that, though, very quickly? I think yes. I'm just looking at Ivana Bacic there. So I think what's very important as well is to have women in politics who are asking questions about the structures that seem to benefit yeah. men more than women. So, for instance, the structure of, of the, the doll and entering, how difficult it is for women to, you know, to be in politics, for instance. That's to do with the structures. It's to do with childcare. Academia is the same. The, 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 mm. what you, the structures are not there to facilitate you know, women who work part-time or take career breaks, they're very, um, based on a very narrow definition of mm. progression um, and promotion. So I think the structures are also very important in terms of creating a different kind of culture. Yep. And I just want to say a very short comment. I know that Ivana Vatic, Senator Ivana Vatic, will speak about votes for women, but I have to say that I have the pleasure to be part of a 100 women cyclist this was back on St. Patrick's Day. And I had to say, obviously, the, the role of, of bicycles to emancipate women. I have a quote here yes. from Susan Anthony, who wrote in 1896, I think that bicycle has done more to emancipate women than any other thing in the world. And we were there cycling as part of the freedom machine. But um, this was the St. Patrick's Parade. But my only question or remark is that we are some migrant women here in the room. And I suppose perhaps in 20 years' time, when this debate takes place again, the role of migrant women in the Irish society will be there because it's part of this, I suppose, um, we are in 2018, but many migrant women have, have or they still have a very, um, I suppose, influential role in the Irish society, whether there are Irish citizens, whether there are new migrants, no? I suppose. I've been here almost 20 years, and I've seen a lot of changes from politics, from the way things have happened. I mean, that just, I don't want to make publicity, but I have a book here that was just launched it's 51 women called Inspired Migrant Women. Um, it's being collected by a um, um, journalist called Carol Assams. There's 51 women, migrant women living in Ireland, speaking about their stories here. So, I, mean, I suppose this is part of history. People who have been here 20 years or 10 years speaking about their lives in Ireland as from politics, from integration, from women's rights. I, mean, I suppose maybe in the next 20 years we will speak about migrants as well. Thank you. Um, could I just... Uh, ask one further question, and it is Brian Fennell, who spoke earlier this morning, uh, said that uh, women should vote for women candidates in politics. Do you agree? Depends on the woman. Uh, there are so I could never have voted for Margaret Thatcher, or any really? Irish version of <laughs> Margaret Thatcher. So, um, no, uh, I think that's far too simplistic. You have to fight for the... Obviously, I think, in every party, there's an opportunity, I think, depending on your point of view, to vote for a woman, because the women politicians are, are, are moving more women into, into the political mainstream. But uh, for me, it will be who advocates uh, for democracy, for justice, for, 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 for liberation, for progressive left-wing policies. They're the women I, I would vote okay. for. And I have to say, yeah. there's a good few of them around, yeah. so huh? we have opportunities to vote for them. Good I, think, I think more yes. important than voting for individual women is setting the standard, setting the bar that we want women to reach in order for us to vote for them. 
And I think that's happening. I think more and more women are conscious that they have to represent their own issues. Yeah. Yeah, I, issues. I, I think it's a, a kind of an invalid question uh, in a way because again what we want to do is change the structures to enable more women mm -hmm. to enter politics so that we have equal numbers of men and women to make, able to make those mm -hmm. kinds of choices. I don't think women voting for women is going to okay. change okay. you know, the composition of the doll. Um, <laughs> to be honest, if I can at all, I try and vote for a woman because I want more women to be in politics but again I would totally agree with with Anne, I, if it was Maggie Thatcher, it would be an absolute uh, mm. no. Or Theresa May at the moment. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, thank you very much. I'd be a Boris um, fan. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Vincent. Um, okay, uh, on your behalf, I thank the panel. <laughs>